Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Happy Easter to everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. That's where we're eventually going to make it. Luke 5, you heard me correctly. Not the end of Luke. Luke 5. We're going to get there. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up um, in our series. We've been in this series uh, called the, the King is Here. We've been just going verse by verse through the book of Luke. And uh, we're eventually going to get to Luke chapter 5. So type in your phones, flip in your Bibles, whatever you have to do to get there, and that'll be good. You know, um, Jesus was once asked a very, very important question. He was asked this question, what is the work of God? If you were asked that question, I'm sure you would think the work of God, hmm, probably feeding the poor, maybe caring for orphans, maybe it would be reading your Bible or coming to church or something like that. That's like the real work of God. That's not how Jesus answered. Jesus answered this way, the work of God is to believe in me. What is work? What is the work of God? It's to believe in me. And the reality is that it is work sometimes to believe in Jesus, is it not? Three weeks ago, I got a text from my mother that my grandfather had uh, fallen and that he was in the hospital, and uh, he then rapidly had some complications and took a turn for the worse. Um, I was here, honest, well, not here, I was at our other space, on, the, on Sunday preaching. I got done speaking, I got in a car with my brother, and I drove to see him, and that was the last time I ever saw him. After 32 years of him being in my life, gone. Now, what ensued for me when this happened was a crisis like one um, that I have unfortunately gotten used to as people pass away who I care about. I began to ask that question, what really happens when we die? Like, Really? Where is he? Where, where did he go? It, it, is it, was his life just kind of snuffed out? He doesn't exist anymore? Is he in heaven? Like, you know, we, we have this thing like, oh, he's with grandma now. But really? We've been going through his home, and uh, everything is, was as he left it. And every picture of his life seems to me to carry a part of the significance of his life. And so as I'm walking through this house, and I'm, this house that I grew up in, essentially, I'm going like, really? Just like that? He's not even here. I'm like going through his tool shed, getting things out, finding his old license plates to his Porsches, because he had a bunch of Porsches. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm going through them, and I'm just like, oh, I want to ask you about, I can't ask you about this, you're gone. And as a Christian, especially as a pastor, I'm like, I should have more faith right now. I should believe, no, he really is uh, with the Lord. But you, you begin to wonder, resurrection? Really? Paul must have been in an interesting place when he got up the nerve to pen, death, where is your sting? Because I don't know about you, it really stings sometimes. The past month has stung. Uh, we see evidence of death everywhere, do we not? What I mean by that is that we see atrophy everywhere. Atrophy is death in action. It's the slow grind of things falling apart. And you would think that the more that we see it, the more used to it we would get. 
Wouldn't you? You'd think, well, we just experience so much. People die. Everybody's going to die. It's like the thing that everybody, we all know that. We see the, that our bodies break down and they don't function the way that they used to function. Our cars break. Everything is, in the words of that great book, things fall apart. Whether it's the phone call from the doctor with the bad news. Or it's the car accident. Or the sudden illness. All of these things still seem to rock us at our core and to remind us of our imminence. And in the midst of our imminence, I would guess that every single person in this room still longs for the eternal. For, for something that's so common, why doesn't it sit right with us? See, I don't believe that there's a personal demon behind all illness or pain, but I do believe that we live in a world that reverberates with the echoes of Genesis chapter 3. Everywhere we look, we can see death, meaning that everywhere we look, we see things falling apart. But on this audacious day, in the spirit of Paul, why doesn't it sit right with us? Why do we all hate it? In fact, the atrophy of this world, the death on repeat, is so maddening that many people get to the same place that Pilate found himself right before putting Jesus to death. Look up on the screens. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. Do you hear this question? It's not the question of what is true. It's what is truth? In other words, is anything really true? Does truth really exist? What can I believe? What is solid in this world? And I would argue this is the question of every human. All of us are pilot. Because all of us see this death on repeat, the ache from the sting, and it all seems meaningless. And if it's meaningless... Is there even truth? Culturally, this is where we're at. Um, Pilate sounds like a 21st century you know, individual. Does truth even exist? Is there anything solid to place the weight of one's life upon? And, and here's how we really got here. It's, it's really the difference between these two paintings. The painting on the left is romantic realism. That's a romantic realist painting. And the philosophy of this time was to reflect the objective realities of life. So accuracy was valued. We actually want to, there's something real and objective out there, and we want to accurately reflect that. That's why art exists, to accurately reflect the world around it. But this painting to the right is a Monet. And the philosophy of this slightly later time period wasn't accuracy, it was impression. It's impressionism. Art is about the impression the artist had when they saw that scene. So 
it, it, it's not, nothing's really objective. There's no objective realities that actually exist. Just your interpretation of those things and various people's interpretation of the, those things, their impressions of those things. The first painting is interested in what lies beyond man. What is real? The second painting is interested in the mind of the painter. The object is not as important as, well, how did Monet feel and interpret the things that he was seeing in front of him? See, without truth, all that is interesting is what people's takes are, how they think about the world. That's what's really interesting. And while this is beautiful and I actually prefer the Monet, uh, <laughs> this is a horrible way to live your life to view all of life. And this way of thinking has driven men and women mad, and it is possibly one of, if not the causes of mental health in our world today. There's no truth, just people's interpretation of things, just people's impressions. And let me put forth to you this morning that this is what led to the Jewish people wanting a murderer freed and an innocent man killed. See, what has driven us so mad is a life where death is inevitable. It's like the only truth, death. And we see constant reminders of it without anyone knowing how to slow its decay or reverse its effects. And simply beaten down by the atrophy, we begin to ask, what is truth? Is there anything that's true? Because death seems to make everything meaningless. But I want to tell you this morning that you do not need to live like this. Through the deafening screams, echoing through the Romanesque halls of Pilate's palace, for the virtue of Barabbas and the vice of Jesus, Jesus answers Pilate. One of the most profound things about this moment with Jesus and Pilate is that Jesus said this a few chapters earlier. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why, when Pilate goes, what is truth? Did Jesus not answer, I am, I'm truth? Why, why, why did he not do that? Well, I would argue that he actually did answer, but not with words. He answered with something that no words could describe. He answered with his resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. For all of you who are here this morning, who labor under the atrophy, who weep and mourn over the loss, who wonder if there's anything more real, more true than death, Jesus answers with his life, yes. What is truth? It's resurrection. An innocent man 
dying for the guilty, but not staying dead, triumphing over darkness in resurrection, that is actually more true than anything else. That is the precondition of all truth. (laughs) Do you see what this means? This answer of Jesus. If he is truth, well then how do you see the world? How do you interpret your impressions of the world? How do you interpret the death on repeat, the atrophy of all things through the lens of resurrection? That's how you begin to see the world. It doesn't matter what your perception is or how you may feel about an issue. What does resurrection say about this thing in front of you? For pain, what does resurrection say? God is remaking the world. Revelations chapter 21 and chapter 22. What does it say? God's remaking it. For politics and the tension that we have, resurrection is more real than Rome's power to control. You can imagine Pilate catching word. That guy that we crucified is not in the grave. And he's like, what? (laughs) Even Rome couldn't keep him down. For money, what what does it do for money? Resurrection says, who needs it? God has numbered your hair. For death, Jesus is the first fruits, meaning there's a whole lot more of that resurrection coming in all of us. See, if there is evidence of death all around us, and Jesus said, pray on earth as it is in heaven, then we pray for the evidence of life, evidence of resurrection to increase. That's our positioning. Regardless of the atrophy, regardless of death on repeat, our prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. Resurrection increase right here in this person's life, in this person's situation. And when we do that, our lives begin to look like this. Look back down at your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke. I actually got to turn there because I forgot to turn there. I told all of you guys what to do, and I didn't even do it. Luke chapter 5. When you begin to live with resurrection as your precondition for all truth, this is what begins to happen in your life. You begin to look like this. Verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, notice that, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Let's all say that together. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What is this story? This is the reversing of atrophy. It's the reversing of death on repeat. It's a reminder of resurrection power. It's actually what this is, really, and this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what, it, what oh, time and time again, throughout all the Gospels, the stories are all this. It's resurrection now before the age to come. It's evidence. If there's evidence of death all around us, Jesus and his disciples become evidence of life. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you came this morning wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you so get in Jesus and he so gets in you that you begin to produce life wherever you go. 
And this is what I'm hoping, like, you know, this is Easter, obviously, but this is also the first time we've ever met here. Like, this is a big move for our church. What's going to happen here? Is it all going to change all the good times that we had? Is it going to be totally different? Are we going to lose momentum? No. <laughs> it's glory to glory. Yeah. See, what I'm hoping for in this space is that Newburgh, they get a glimpse that Jesus is willing to bring heaven even to them. And healings of all sorts happen here. Evidence of God's presence amidst the atrophy of all things. You're like, why do I feel hope and joy? You got around him. When Jesus came, he said, my kingdom is at hand. It was one of the first things that came out of his mouth. My kingdom is at hand. Meaning that the kingdom of God, in other words, heaven on earth, the kingdom of God, the space where God's will is done, the space where darkness is pushed back, the space where resurrection happens, is at hand, meaning you can reach it. Uh, every now and then I'll get into bed, and um, our kitchen's at the other side of the house, and I'll get into bed exhausted, and I'll look over to my table, and there's no glass of water. <laughs> Catastrophic. Because I think of how cold my feet will be tiptoeing to the kitchen. <laughs> and I look over at my wife and I go, well, never mind. Um, so, <laughs> that is true. So, uh, in fact, actually, you know what? Last night she said, I have an empty glass here and you have a glass fill over there. Can, if I give you my glass, can I just have a little bit of yours? Look, nobody wants to get out of bed once, once they're there. If I'm sitting there and my glass is at hand, what does that mean? It's accessible. The kingdom is at hand. It's accessible. See, Jesus didn't come to just get you into heaven. Maybe you believed that. Maybe you heard that. That Jesus, his message for you was, was getting you into heaven when you die. No, he came to get heaven into you. So that resurrection would touch whatever you touch right here, right now. The Bible uses a metaphor that I think is really helpful here. It's in the um, book to the Philippians. Paul calls us citizens of heaven. Is that interesting language? Citizens of heaven. What a metaphor. Now, what does that mean? I think that it means that you carry with you the privileges that only citizens of heaven carry. Imagine this. Here's a photo of the U.S. Embassy in Haiti. Not much to look at, but if you've ever been to Haiti, that's a nice building. Um, the rules of this embassy in Haiti are different than the rules of Haiti. <laughs> and amen, because I've spent some time in Haiti. Uh, the land that this embassy sits on is not Haitian land. That's United States land. That building isn't governed by the poverty of Haiti or the corrupt policies of Haiti. It's governed by the wealth of the United States and the Declaration of Independence. The safety of an embassy when you're in a foreign country is that it's a refuge and a place to find solutions for the problems that you may face in the country you're in. Are you getting the metaphor? <laughs> Our embassy is the embassy of resurrection. So I will live from and work from a place of triumph rather than defeat throughout all of life. I don't, I don't look at the poverty <laughs> 
at the atrophy, at the death on repeat and go, oh man, what a rough place to live. No, I go, I'm a citizen of heaven. I have a different embassy. I have different solutions. I have different resources to the problems that I see around me. When you live in heaven while you're here on earth, in that overlap, it changes the way things work relationally for you. When you experience forgiveness and connection with your creator, you begin to get hopeful for the people around you. Like, if he did it for me, what could he do with them? <laughs> people, that, people who were once obstacles to your personal project, like, if they would just get their stuff together or just get out of the way. Those people become people who you look at and you go, God loves them just as much as me. And he actually placed us here in this same time period. Nobody else gets to have them as a neighbor. They're my neighbor. Maybe he wants to do something with that. Things change for us physically. Death doesn't get a final word. There's a time to die. But until then, all physical healing is a reminder that God has resurrection in store for humanity. We don't pray, you know, if you're new to our church, we're a church that prays for healing. Uh, because that's what Jesus did. We, we don't pray for healing because it's really cool. Like, that church has a lot of healings. What a cool church. Nope. No. I'm uninterested in that. We pray for healing because that's what people do who have integrity when they have heaven inside of them. What else could we do? We have to do this. This is what Jesus did. Things change emotionally. I'm not in need. I don't live my life with this, with this deep need. No, no, no. With death taken care of, I now live with a full tank emotionally knowing that God would stop at nothing for me. I will not define my life by the lack around me. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have access to resources and wisdom that the world does not. And I believe that this is what we're going to see in this new building. What are we going to see in this new building? This is the kind of stuff we're going to see in this new building. For some of you, your emotional life is going to change. In a year from now, you won't even recognize your old self. For some of you, your body's going to change. You're going to get healed, and it's going to usher you into a deep and profound relationship with God, which is the greater miracle, in my opinion. Things are going to change relationally. You're going to start looking at the people around you and going, what a joy to be in life, in life with this person. I love this person. Do you know how many times <laughs> I've, I've worked at, a, at another church before, a couple different churches before. I have never been a part of a church where I look around at the people around me and I just go, I just love them. I just love them so much. I just love them. I don't, there's some of you I don't even really know that well, and I'm just like, I just love them. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> We're going to go from glory to glory. One of our elders, Andoni, had a prophetic word for a season that I want to describe uh, to end. Um, see, from Moses to Jesus, there has been a call for the people of God to go to dark places and shine, to worship in the wilderness to have a feast where you shouldn't. And it was those who would go there who would find that God had prepared a table in the presence of their enemies. It might be strange that we're in the city's building, a building that's dedicated to many different things, not explicitly to the Lord. Oh, we're just gonna worship in the wilderness like the Israelites. <laughs> we're just called to go to dark places and to be a light. The author of John put it this way, in him, being Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Christians, 
if you have Jesus and he has you, you're light. You're light. You can live lives afraid of nothing. Because of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, you actually end up dispelling darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome you. Some Christians have a big enemy and a small Jesus. But, but here's what, what Paul says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's good. That is good news right there. And having, I want you to notice this, disarmed the powers and authorities, the darkness, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, my focus is not on the enemy and what he may or may not be doing, what he may be up to. I don't need to see it. I don't need to know about it. I simply stay focused on Jesus and his victory and my light dispels darkness, period. When the enemy presents himself, which he does, I'm uninterested in what his tactics are. I don't need to know what he looks like. I don't need to know what his name is or what street he lives on. I simply say, oh, Jesus has made a spectacle of you. You have no power here. I, I actually can laugh. <laughs> I'd be like, you thought that you could do that here? You've got to be kidding me. I was writing this message and I was thinking about a couple different, you know, in the, past, in the past year, probably a couple different ways that I've actually seen the enemy try to weasel his way into my life, into the life of the church and, and to do things. And I actually started laughing at him. I'm like, you're going to sit over there and I'm just going to laugh at you. You thought that you could sow dissension in this family? <laughs> That's hilarious. We actually have the Holy Spirit. So no, you're not, gonna, you're not sowing any dissension. There's unity of the spirit. You thought that you could steal, kill and destroy in this town and that we wouldn't notice? You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You thought that this town was your town? No, it's our town. It's Jesus' town. <laughs> Look, here's what I believe. We are about to see resurrection life explode in Newburgh, like Newburgh has never seen before. I really haven't seen some of the level of collaboration between churches in this town and, and just the active movement of God. It, it's like, I've never seen that before. There are people, by the way, I just want to say this. There are people from other churches. They're not even here right now. There are people from other churches who were here this morning, walking around this building, in this sanctuary, praying for us. Yeah, something's going on. The best is yet to come when resurrection is your standard. And this is becoming the standard of Newburgh. You know, when you go to Jerusalem, I've been there one time, when you go to Jerusalem, there's several different sites that people will tell you, tour guides will tell you, this is where Jesus was buried. And when I got there, I remember thinking, several different sites, yikes, that seems like a problem. What do you mean? There should be one site. This is the tomb, period. Like, sheesh. And, and, and some, are, some are likely, but some are not so likely, and so you do, you hit all of them. <laughs> it's like, which one did you feel like it was, you know? The reason for that is that the tomb was lost by the early church. How could that happen? Why? Because it didn't mean anything. If Jesus was still in there, it would have been venerated. It would have become a shrine, a pilgrimage site, protected with barbed wire and fences and guards. Think about when a child dies. 
their room becomes somewhat of a shrine. But when the child is alive, it's simply a room just like any other child's room. The significance of the room comes when the child is dead. And that room becomes a link to the child in a spiritual sort of way. Why did the early church not do this if Jesus was truly gone, truly dead, unresurrected? Because he wasn't. Because he was alive. Because they had him. So I want to ask you this morning, do you have him? And does he have you? Because when you have him and he has you, you will lose your tomb as well. And when our culture looks at you like Pilate looked at Jesus and asks, weighed down by death, what is truth? Your life will answer resurrection. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.